Greetings, and welcome back to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, we welcome Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko is the impresario behind Miyoko's Creamery, which produces plant-based cheeses, butter, and other meatless marvels. She also started Rancho Compasión, a farm animal sanctuary in Nicasio, California, up there in rural Marin County. Uh, a little bit of full disclosure for you. Miyoko is a personal hero of mine. All right. So I'm just putting that out there. So the opportunity to go to Rancho Compasión and sit with her and talk about her work and its impact was really one of the highlights of doing this show for me over the last year. I was totally, totally geeking out, you guys. No joke. We did this interview by a chicken coop that is roughly the size of a bungalow uh, right there on the ranch. Uh, you will hear those chickens speak up during this interview. And honestly, I think this may be my favorite episode of What is California so far. Uh, we had just the best time. And I think you'll hear it in the conversation. It was just, it was so entertaining, so thought provoking. And so surprising. Honestly, it was just, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't really get enough of it. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoy it. I, I'm just thrilled to bring it to you before I continue though. I just want to say for the record, because as a vegan myself, I know how this kind of thing goes. This episode is not here to convert anybody to being a vegan. Okay. Just, <laughs> I want to put that out there right now. If it has that effect, awesome. But that is not the point, And I doubt that will be its effect. Uh, this episode is here just to show like all the rest of them, just to show one of the many intriguing threads and voices that make up California life and, you know, California lifestyle. And also to spotlight you know, this particular Californian who has influenced that lifestyle for decades now. Miyoko has been experimenting with vegan cuisine in restaurants and in bakeries and in cookbooks for a very long time. She and her work have made impact on, uh, let's just say two fronts. Okay, first, she has mainstreamed the idea of plant-based dairy products, largely using a blend of cashew-based milks, coconut oil, uh, starches like tapioca starch and other natural ingredients, 100% natural ingredients. We're not talking about like super hyper mega processed food here. This is all stuff you've heard of. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that her cultured butter is one of the greatest culinary innovations of my lifetime. This is not a paid advertisement. I am just here to say it is indistinguishable from the real thing. And arguably it is better than the real thing. I never have less than a couple of pounds of this stuff in my fridge at any given time, whether it's for baking, for spreading, for like just throwing on toast, throwing it on popcorn, it does it all. Um, she's also made an impact on another front. The second front that I would like to point out is it's more environmental and humane because in a state like California where you know, we're seeing more and more the mounting environmental consequences, the mounting climate consequences, and the extreme animal and human suffering from industrial agriculture. Miyoko's work has helped 
point consumers to better and more humane, more sustainable ways of producing food in 2022 and beyond. We talk about that. We talk about her dairy farm transition program, which is exactly what it sounds like. And we talk about this kind of like pushback, a kind of strenuous pushback that the program has received from California's dairy industry. We also talk about the difference between the phrases plant-based and vegan, which are, I guess, you know, practically the same, but philosophically very, very different. And we'll kind of get into why that is uh, during this chat. And again, my cards are on the table here. All right. I am a vegan. I've been vegan for years. I would love to see more folks reduce the consumption of animal products in their lives. All right. Full disclosure. But even if it's one day or two days a week, kind of pulling back from animal products, that would make a colossal difference for factors like water consumption in California, methane emissions, animal welfare, just human welfare, human health. So I just, I would love for this episode to prompt you and other listeners to think about this. But listen, sincerely, I love you either way, okay? Just for the record, I love you. No matter what, there is room at the table for my Miyoko's butter and your dairy butter. There is room for my Impossible Burger and your beef patty. There is room for my Oatly mint chocolate chip ice cream <laughs> and your, uh, you know, your Haagen-Dazs or whatever. No judgments expressed or implied, sincerely. And even if you are listening to this podcast over a plate of bacon and eggs, uh, there is plenty else in Miyoko's amazing, amazing story to enlighten you and hopefully get us a little bit closer to answering that fundamental question at the core of every one of our episodes. What is California? So have a listen. Let me know what you think. I would love to hear from you. You can email me anytime at hello at whatiscalifornia.com or give me a shout on Twitter at whatcalifornia. It's always a pleasure to hear from all of you. In the meantime, let's go ahead and get to it. Here is me with the one and only Miyoko Shinner on What is California? Enjoy. Miyoko Shinner, welcome to What is California? How are you? I'm doing great, Stu. Thanks for coming over here to Rancho Compasión and, and hanging out for a bit here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So Rancho Compasión, where exactly is this? Where are we right now? Describe uh, the scene for our listeners. All right. We are actually sitting right by the aviary where, because of avian flu, we've had to lock up all of our chickens and turkeys. Uh, they're on lockdown, just like we were during the pandemic. Uh, so it's their pandemic and it's... Uh, it's sad, but Rancho Compasión is a farmed animal sanctuary in Nicasio, California, or Nicasio is the way the locals call it. Mm -hmm. This is in West Marin, and it's a sleepy little town of about 900 people, lots of uh, ranches around here, equestrian centers, and our farmed animal sanctuary where we have about 90 residents is right here. And it's just a piece of, as my daughter would say, this is uh, coastal Miwok land, mm -hmm. Um unseated Miwok land. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just very fortunate to be here. This is, there's a certain energy that I feel here and the animals all know it. Yeah. I wish uh, those listening at home could see where we are right now. It's quite amazing with the, just this gigantic, like house-sized chicken coop. And um, we've got sheep, 
we've got cows, we've got all kinds of farm animals just kind of hanging around here. How many animals did you say were here in total? We have about 90 individual residents, and, okay. and we really do think of them as individuals, and they all have names. Okay. And you said residents, too, so they're not just like, you know, kind of animals hanging out. Like, these are your residents. These are your, They live like, here. Yeah. They're, they're going to live their, the rest of their lives here, and they're going to get food and veterinary care and lots and lots of love and attention from everybody. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's come back yeah. to that. Um, but let's go back to the very beginning for you. What's okay. your California story? Uh, are, are you from here? Or if not, how and when did you arrive? Okay, here? well, I actually am from Japan mm -hmm. and I emigrated here in 1964 when I was a child. Uh, my father is American. He, was, he lived in California. Uh, he's actually from Kansas City uh, originally. Um, actually North Carolina, then Kansas City, but he moved out here as a teenager and grew up in Santa Cruz with his aunt and uh, went to school here. So he, he sort of, a, he was sort of a native Californian. He'd be in his hundreds by now. And so we came out in 1964, my mother and I, to live with him. Um, and I, my first memory of California was landing at SFO. I remember this as vividly as if it was yesterday because I had this this dream that, you know, it was going to be like the Jetsons living in this rural little village in uh, in Japan next to the rice paddies. Mm -hmm, I looked mm -hmm. forward to this urban setting with high rises and fast cars and this sort of thing. Like we didn't even have any cars where I live. <laughs> Seriously, there was one car, a three wheeler that was owned by the fishmonger. Uh -huh. And that was it. Otherwise, you just walked or took the train. And so I had this vision of what my first day in California was going to be like. And my dad uh, drove up. Uh, to pick us up at the airport, you know, uh, you know how he, they greet you and then they have to go get the car. And so he came up and I was expecting this sort of sleek, I don't know, some sort of, you know, I didn't, Corvette or Oldsmobile or something. And it was like a 1963 Volkswagen bus. <laughs> and I was like, what is this thing? <laughs> and we got into the Volkswagen bus and we started driving through San Francisco. And I just remember at every turn I kept, I'd see a beautiful high rise and I'd say, is that where we're going to live? Is that our apartment? Is that our apartment? And then we crossed the Golden Gate Bridge and we crossed into Marin County and started driving through the countryside again. I'm like, what is going on here? I thought we were going to live in this, you know, this modern paradise. And we ended up driving up this sleepy little lane in Mill Valley to the bottom of a duplex in the middle of the country. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't left Japan. So have you been here ever since? Been here ever since, except for when I went to college. And then I actually moved back to Japan for about 10 years. Okay. All right. So when did you get back to California uh, kind of for good? It was 1988. Eight. Was the year of the earthquake, was that 88? 89. 89. Okay, it was 89. Yeah. So in what ways has this area of California changed oh my since God. you've been here? So I grew up in Mill Valley, and Mill Valley was an amazing place to grow up. I mean, it was back in the 60s. It was the quintessential little town where you said hi to everyone you met. Um, there was a teacher named Rita Abrams who wrote this song called Mill Valley, California, that's my home, and it became a huge hit. It played on on AM radio, uh -huh. and she had all her, I think she was a third grade teacher, and the, and the kids sang the chorus with her, and it was like, um, I'm going to tell you about a place that's got a hold on me, Mill Valley. <laughs> and it's just, anyway, it was this great song, you know, where life is very fun and very free, Mill Valley, and it was just like that. You literally walked down the street, and you said hello to everyone, and you chatted with everybody, 
And then, you know, like in the late 60s, Stephen Stills or, or David Crosby, we'd be driving down the road in their Mercedes Benz and you'd wave and they'd wave back. And it was just amazing. like amazing. It was just this amazing place to grow up and you walked everywhere. And then, you know, when I got into middle school, I started hitchhiking everywhere and everything was safe and everybody was like, you cut through people's backyard to, to get to the other street and everyone was, it was just like amazing place. And right. now it's like super shishi. Like I try to avoid it at all, all, all costs, you know, it's just not the place that I grew up. But, mm -hmm. but anyway, went to old middle school, Tam High. Um, it was an amazing place. Mm -hmm. And so what about uh, this part, like Nicasio or uh, this, this yeah, so region here? Is, is this pretty much, this looks pretty untouched overall. This, this is, I would say, I mean, I think one of the reasons we're here is it's it's one of the last bastions of sort of untouched Marin. It, it's still much more like it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, what's so interesting is that this is actually like Lucas Land, right? Yes. Like Skywalker Sound or Skywalker Ranch. Around not, the corner from here. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So like also like the most, you know, modern cutting yes. edge industrial yes. production space in California arguably is just, you know, a stone's throw from your farm. Yeah, and also, you know, there are, there's a lot of ranching families, equestrian centers that have been here for decades. But at the same time, there are a lot of very, very, you know, I don't know, billionaires, wealthy people, artists, um, musicians that have moved out here just mm -hmm. because you get a big piece of land. It's beautiful. Uh, it's remote, but it's also only 15 minutes to San Rafael. Um, and so, you know, there's there's that aspect. So it really it has changed, but it's also kind of like what Mill Valley was, believe it or not, when I was growing up before the pandemic. I moved out here about eight years ago. And uh, immediately I got a call from the ladies auxiliary. <laughs> so there's a volunteer fire department and the lazy ladies auxiliary that's been literally around here for 150 years since this town was founded, supports the fire department by having fundraisers. And basically it's an excuse for the ladies of Nicasio to get together and have a party. And so I got, you know, sucked into this or invited into this. And it was like this amazing group of, of people, um, all kinds of people, uh, like really brilliant artists and writers, as well as just uh, equestrians or ranchers or just plain housewives or whatever. But it was just this wonderful, warm group of people that support each other here. There is more of a sense of a community here, even though, you know, you, you really can't walk to your neighbor. You have to kind of drive to your neighbor because everyone has 40 acres or so. Mm -hmm. um, but it, there is a real sense of community here. There are more, prior to the pandemic, there were more events and parties and almost monthly there was something going on that brought the community together. I feel like, you know, I've, I've found a little taste of what I first experienced when I came to California right here. And you, a few minutes ago, were talking about landing at the airport and arriving in San Francisco. Would you say that was your earliest memory of California? Oh, that is, that was the very first day, the very first few hours. So that is absolutely my earliest memory. Do you have another most enduring or significant memory of California that sticks out to you over the years? Well, this is a, a memory of me bringing a piece of Japan to California. It was the first year. I didn't speak, I didn't speak any English. I only spoke Japanese. And how old were you? I was uh, just, just turning, going into first grade. I would think I was just going on to seven. Okay. And I think it was that summer. So we have a, an event in Japan called Tanabata, which is the seventh day of July. So seven, seven. It's when two stars meet in the heavens. And I can't remember what stars they are, but <laughs> it's sort of an annual occurrence. And there's a Japanese legend about how there was a princess and a prince that were separated and they only get to meet once a year. And so you put up a, a bamboo tree and you put your wishes of for them meeting or for peace on earth or whatever on 
on these little strips of paper and you decorate it. So it so happened that this the the house that I first came to in Mill Valley had bamboo trees in the front yard. <laughs> and so on Tanabata, I, um, you know, my mother and I celebrated that and we put little strips of paper on that. And for some reason, a journalist found, uh, was, I don't know, stumbled upon it mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I got a front page article when I didn't even speak English in the, in the independent <laughs> journal, the Marin Independent yeah, Journal. So sure. that was like, I was, you know, very, I was uh, really touched by that. Uh, the fact that, that, something Japanese and so traditionally Japanese was, was recognized. So who are some Californians who have influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? Okay. Well, my strongest memory of a Californian was Elizabeth Terwilliger. The Elizabeth Terwilliger? The Elizabeth (laughs) Terwilliger. So she happened to be a neighbor. And one day I was about eight years old. We had just moved to this new neighborhood and I was just wandering around there. And there was this wooded area, like a little forest there. And so I just went down there trying to explore and was wondering, what is this forest doing here on this street? And I stumbled into the backyard. And this uh, sort of round-faced woman, friendly, with kind of a ruddish face and big smile came out of her house and, and said, well, hello there. Uh, and where did you come from? Or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I thought, oh my God, you know, have I done something wrong? And she was so, she invited me into her house, made me a sandwich. And then she took me into her, um, into her garage where she had all these, um, uh, what is it called? Taxidermy, all these, yeah, these sure. animals that have been taxidermied or whatever the word is. And she started telling me about the hawk and, uh-huh. uh, and, and all of these other animals. And, and, I was just absolutely fascinated. Um, and so I visited her all the time and she became a good friend and a mentor. And I spent almost every weekend with her. Um, she taught me how to sail. Uh, we would go down to um, uh, the Bay by Mill Valley right mm-hmm. there. There was a little community center there at the time. I, um, I don't know if it's still there anymore. And she taught me how to sail, how to fiberglass an eight-foot uh, sailboat. Wow. Um, I would go on field trips with her on weekends. Huh. I would help her clean up the seashore, whatever it was. I spent almost every weekend with Elizabeth Terwilliger um, until I was sometime in middle school. Um, she was, she taught me about nature. She taught me about animals. And somehow during that process, I don't think she was vegetarian. I'm not sure. Um, because I don't think the sandwich I had, maybe it was a cheese sandwich. I don't remember. Um, but I became a vegetarian when I was 12 years old and I think she had a huge influence on, you know, how I looked at animals. And you said you did that till middle school. Did you two stay in touch after that? I think I did. You know, you know, people, kids grow up, they move on. And I, I definitely stayed in touch with her during high school. Occasionally we also moved away. So we were no longer on that street. And I think that was part of, um, you know, I guess my being removed, um, or her, from her as much because, you know, you grow up and you start doing other things. I was in high school and we moved to another part of, the, uh, of Mill Valley. What about California's geography? How has the landscape or particular locations, terrain or buildings, roads, spaces influenced or impacted you and who you are? Well, I can tell you that my, um, when I was 16 years old, I went to Brooklyn, New York to go to Pratt Institute. When you were 16? I was, yeah, I graduated a year early. Back then you could graduate early huh. and, and I was a young school, ta- uh, you know, whatever, school age person anyway. So you were a prodigy. Admit um, it. Not really. But <laughs> anyway, so um, 
I went there. I remember it was a hot August evening, August night, and the sky was brown. Back then, the air was not clean. I mean, it's a lot cleaner now, but it was a brick brown, just like, or brick red, just like the brownstones and the bricks in, in Brooklyn. And I was like, oh my God, I, I couldn't, I was so depressed having been taken out of this beautiful place. I remember telling everyone about the beautiful place I had come from, how beautiful Mill Valley was, how wonderful Mount Tam was. Mm -hmm. And all I could do was tell them about this place. And I would just look into these blank eyes like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm from Chicago (laughs) or whatever. Um, But I just, and I remember one of my art teachers, I brought, um, she came to visit me uh, a few months later when I, I think it was on, I was on summer break or something. And she came and visited me in Mill Valley and I took her up to Mount Tam and I wanted to show her all my favorite spots. I mean, I, I lived on that. I grew up on Mount Tam. I hiked there. I bicycled there. Um, and I could imagine no place more beautiful. So is that still your favorite place, Mount Tam, or is there another one? I think there's a lot of places now. Um, we had a, a cabin up um, in the Sierra Foothills in a little town called Washington uh, on the Yuba River. Oh, sure. And yeah. I spent many, many days uh, going up and down the Yuba, swimming there, climbing over boulders, jumping off boulders. Um, and that's another one of my favorite places as well. And then, of course, you know, on lazier days, I absolutely love wine country, Sonoma and Napa. And and I just, I love Northern California. I mean, SoCal's okay. Um, you know, my brother lives in SoCal. I'm going to be down there in a couple of weeks. It's nice to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. NorCal is the place to be. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, we will try and avoid a Miyoko fueled <laughs> NorCal SoCal rivalry on what All is right. California. All right. We'll just go ahead and leave that there. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your work because you have not always been a plant based dairy impresario, right? Like, w- what kind of work or professional pursuits? did you have before getting into food? Well, actually, I've been in food for a long time. I've been in food since uh, the mid-1980s when I went vegan. And uh, I was also, you know, trying to figure out in my early 20s, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Do I, you know, I I love jazz and I was a a fledgling wannabe jazz singer. And so I was trying to figure out, do I move back to New York and and really try to study jazz and, and become a jazz singer? Uh, what do I do? And then, um, or do I go into food? Cause I really love food too. Um, and I was thinking, do I want to go to culinary school? But what kept me from going was because I was already a vegetarian. I thought, well, I, I don't want to be cooking with meat. So what do I do? And then somehow I became vegan. And then I was like, oh my God, I have all of these desserts and pastries and rich buttery dishes that I can no longer make. What am I going to do? And that launched me into this uh, world of exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the beginning. And uh, my very first business was a, a, a vegan bakery in Tokyo. Um, it was a wholesale bakery. And um, I rented this dusty old bakery that had been shut down for years and uh, dusted off the cobwebs and cleaned it up. And I started baking pound cakes. Pound cakes were all the rage in Japan at the time. But these were made out of uh, uh, okara, which is the byproduct of tofu production or soy milk production. And... Um, and vegan. And, um, I didn't have a car, so I put 70 of them and they're a pound cake is a pound to remind you. (laughs) So 70 would fit in a backpack. And then I delivered them by subway all around Tokyo. 
So that carrying, was my very first business. Carrying around 70 pounds of yeah. cake on a on, yep. subway on your, yes. on your backpack. Yep, that's what I did. Wow. I mean, by the time I got to the fifth stop, the backpack was a lot lighter. You were committed. <laughs> I was committed. You were in. Yeah. So before we go any further, why don't we just kind of establish some terms? Because I think sometimes people conflate the phrase plant-based with vegan. And I feel like, you know, they have a lot in common, but vegan is almost like a type of like a lifestyle or like maybe even, is there maybe an ideological angle to that, that maybe plant-based is just more kind of broad? Well, that's a great question. And as you can see by the tattoo on my arm, uh, which says phenomenally vegan, I am, you know, 100% committed to to veganism as a lifestyle. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, everyone I talk to is a pre-vegan. So, so plant-based is really just, you know, um, it, I don't, it's a new term. Um, I have a lot of opinions about it. Like people what? have different, well, people have different ideas about what plant-based means. So plant-based can mean you're only eating plants, or it can mean that um, you mostly eat plants. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, I I've bought plant-based products out of egg whites in them. I bought plant-based, oh. you know, go gone home, it says plant-based on the front. I take it home and I read the ingredients and it's got egg whites. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, at one of these trade shows, the Natural Products Expo, we were there in March there were so many companies advertising plant-based. And when you talk to them, they're like, oh yeah, well, it's we have 20 different plants in here, but it's not vegan. And then you read the ingredients and you realize it's got animal products in it, whether it's meat or as far as they're concerned, it's based on plants. It doesn't mean it's exclusively plants. So I think it's a, a, a term that's evolving. People really don't understand it. They all have their own interpretations of it. And it can also be that, you know, for people that are like, yeah, I want to eat more plants. Uh, because it's better for the environment or my health. And I think that's great. I choose to use the word vegan because it's unequivocal. The, the, the definition is unequivocal. And it's not just about what you eat. For me, the difference is plant-based is often about yourself, like you're doing it for yourself. For me, we're not at a point in history anymore where we can really think just about ourselves. We have to think beyond ourselves about whether or not we're even going to have a planet to live on in 30 years. The oceans are going to collapse. Uh, they're predicting that there'll be no fish left in the sea. There's no life in the sea. There will be no life on Earth. And this is something that we have to understand. Um, and we also have to think about, you know, the suffering that's taking place in factory farms everywhere. But it's not just the animals. The, the workers in these situations are also soft, suffering on these uh, slaughter facilities. And as you, they have the highest rates of, of coronavirus, as you know. Right. There's amazing injuries that take place. And then the high rates of, of cancer and uh, because of, because they spray manure into the air and it actually, and people are actually breathing this. Right. And so veganism is really thinking about everything beyond ourselves, the planet, the animals, the people that are caught in the system, as well as the people that are ingesting these foods that are making them sick. And so it really is like, we have to take response. Each of us individually should take responsibility for the future of our planet. And these perspectives are obviously informed and influenced by a lot of contemporary, uh, you know, issues and matters. But what originally prompted you to pursue a vegan diet? Yeah. So I was in my, you know, at the time in the 20s, when I was in my 20s during the 1980s, this information wasn't readily available. But for some reason, ever since I was 12 years old, I read every book, like I read Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore Lappy back in the 1970s. You know, and when I was a kid, I read um, 
everything I could get on about the food system, even as a teenager growing up. I don't know why I had that interest, but I had read um, an article in Vegetarian Times magazine about the dairy industry, and I was unaware of that. And it shocked me. And I thought, okay, um, I had been a vegetarian since 12. I had started eating fish in Japan. And then I read this article in Veg Times and I thought, okay, I just need to go vegan. I just need to stop eating animal products altogether. It wasn't overnight though. I have to admit I cheated occasionally, but yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it's hard, it you know, I mean, it happens, you know, you, you smell some delicious pizza or <laughs> right. you're at a party and you just want to eat some. So how did the idea of plant-based dairy pop in your head? When did that light bulb go off that that might be something you want to pursue? Maybe transition away from the pound cakes in your backpack to Miyoko's Creamery as you know today. Yeah. So um, I moved back to the United States in 1989 and I opened up a little bakery, which turned into, a, uh, then I opened up a restaurant and you know, one of the things that I always miss was cheese. And I felt like you had to have a cheese platter. You had to have that at a restaurant. And so we tried to create all these cheesy dishes. Like I had a, uh, a seitan parmigiana that had a cheese on top that was made out of oat milk. Wow. Um, and when was this? This was back in the, it, I think I started the restaurant in 1994 in San Francisco. Oat milk in 1994. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So I made it out of, it was just homemade oat milk. Yeah. Um, and I don't, know that I even call it oat milk, but I, I made this cheese out of oats. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Wow. Trailblazer, the uh, oat milk OG. I never really thought about it. Um, and then there was this trick I learned in Japan um, where you marinate tofu and miso um, and it turns the texture into something that's really buttery and creamy. And so I, I actually marinated in a combination of wine and mirin, which is sweet sake. And the wine gave it kind of that tang, which was very cheesy. So we had this, this really popular appetizer. It was like cheese with, you know, crude, uh, crostini and, ve and grilled vegetables. And, and so I started experimenting with cheese then. Um, but it seemed like no one else was really landing it. I mean, there were some really horrible slices and shreds in the marketplace that were made out of oil and starch. And, you know, I remember taking it home. There was something called, um, I can't remember, uh, veggie, veggie something. I can't remember, um, and <laughs> vegan rella. And I took it home one time and I was like, oh my God. I could, I was so excited when I saw it and then I tasted it. I was like, okay, oh, no. got to be able to do better than this. So yeah. in the two thousands is really when I started focusing on plant milk dairy. And I, um, started making cheese out of first soy, soy milk, uh, and making yogurt out of soy milk and then draining the yogurt, which is a traditional way of making a fresh cheese and then making cheeses that way. And then I started playing around with other things, legumes and, cashews and making milks and borrowing from traditional dairy technology. So really I, I studied cheesemaking. Um, I took some classes at the local community college. I read some books, I watched videos, and then I just took those techniques and tried to figure out what works and what doesn't work with plant milks. So was there a flagship product that kind of launched the dairy business that really got the ball rolling for Miyoko's Creamery as we know it now? Yeah. So I started the company in 2014 and the whole idea was um, I wanted to prove to the world, and this has been, this is my, like, my personality. I've always wanted to prove to the world that you can make things vegan that's just as delicious. So that back in the 1980s when I launched the bakery, I wanted to prove to people that you could bake vegan. Um, and no one was doing that at the time. And so in, when I started Miyoko's, my 
goal was to produce beautiful artisan cheeses for a cheese platter. I didn't, wasn't interested in, you know, a cheddar slice for a burger. A couple of those products already existed from Day and Follow Your Heart. They weren't made out of milk. They were made out of oil and starch, but the fact is they existed. Mm -hmm. They were, they were passable. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something that you could really indulge on at a party. And so I launched these um, 10 different cheese wheels. Uh, and that was the beginning. Was your business always going to be called Miyoko's Creamery, like your name on it, front and center for better yeah, or worse? Yeah, so we, in, in, initially we weren't sure. And uh, we hired a naming consultant who came up with like oh. 300 names. <laughs> and they came up with your name. And then, well, yeah. And then we read it. We didn't name. like any of them. We just said, well, I'm just going to call it. I So, yeah. <laughs> what were some of the alternatives? Oh, I don't Do you remember? remember. I don't remember. Um, you know, I had dog. I've always loved dogs. So, Initially, I thought I wanted to call a happy dog creamery. Oh, And people okay. were like, nobody wants to eat cheese from happy dog creamery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but, I, I think Miyoko's is definitely yeah. better than happy dog creamery. For sure. I'm glad you called it that. <laughs> um, so where in California did your product kind of take off first? It was like a ground zero or a patient zero for Miyoko's as a brand? Well, actually about 15 minutes from here in Fairfax, California, which oh, wow. is where my first production facility was. It's a little hole in the wall facility. We were going to, we started out doing e-com and selling to Good Earth Natural Foods. So that was the very first store. And they were literally five minutes away and we just, <laughs> uh, the owner was our landlord. So it was really uh -huh. easy to get it in there. And then the breakthrough store was, chain was Whole Foods NorCal. Okay. About three months after we started, uh, the local forager uh, program reached out to us and said, wow, we'd you know, love to carry your product. Did you have to convince people to carry it? It was so easy in the beginning. I mean, I, mean, I would just walk in with a platter of cheese and people would go, oh, my God, because they had never seen anything like that before. Sure. Right. And, you know, how did you compel or convince just consumers, regular consumers, to take advantage of this new product and your, what you're doing? You know, once again, that was also easy. A lot of it was just uh, back then you did a lot of not taste. What are they called? Um, sampling in stores, in-store sampling. I mean, that was huge. We just did a lot of in-store sampling. We went to a lot of events. So whatever events were around here, outdoor events, veg fest, music festivals, we just took, you know, we would get a booth and sample it and people would go, oh, my God. Yeah. And you talked just a minute ago about the imperative to make things vegan, your vegan foods, just as delicious as non-vegan foods, as dairy based, you know, traditional dairy based, animal based products. Um, you know, Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods, which is another California company, mm -hmm. they make plant based meats. Uh, he has argued that the only way to get people to consume less animal based meat and dairy is to create and sell plant based alternatives that are not only indistinguishable from the real thing, but actually taste better than the real thing, um, superior, right, to the real thing. And as if that weren't hard enough to do that, to produce it affordably and at scale. So do you agree with that estimation of vegan products in this vegan market? So yes and no. Um, I do not believe that it has to be indistinguishable. So let me put it this way. Goat's milk cheese is not like cow's milk cheese. And sheep's milk cheese is yet different. People that make goat's milk cheese don't say, I'm going to make cheddar out of goat's milk. Mm -hmm. It's its own thing. And I think that what consumers are looking for are 
things that taste delicious. And they're also looking for fresh and new ideas and concepts. I don't believe we have to replicate cheddar exactly. I think what consumers want is something that is delicious, that satisfies in the same manner as cheddar. Now, there are going to be a few sticklers that say, I can only have cheddar and that's it. But I think the majority of people want new experiences and they want something that is wonderful, that it's delicious, that satiates in the same manner, but can also be different. Um, you know, a case in point is people often think that they look at our point, a single point in history, and they think that's the way it's been forever. And it hasn't been. If you think about Brussels sprouts 15 years ago, who ate Brussels sprouts 15 years ago? <laughs> now everybody eats Brussels sprouts. Right. Same thing with kale. And so people's taste buds do evolve and they do change. There was a time when everyone thought TV dinners were all the rage and they were delicious. Mm -hmm. no, that was the standard at one point. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And they didn't want to have a big, beautiful salad. Nobody wants to eat TV dinners now. People right. would prefer to have a big, beautiful, fresh salad. So tastes do evolve. Humans do evolve. And so we can introduce new foods that are similar yet different and similar but perhaps superior in many ways. Nationally, but especially, and perhaps surprisingly in California, the meat and dairy industries have pretty strenuously resisted and even lobbied against the labels meat and dairy and butter for plant-based products. Uh, and you have just as strenuously pushed back against those efforts. Why is it okay to call plant-based meat meat or plant-based dairy, dairy? Well, just as food evolves, language also evolves. And uh, if we can also borrow from other cultures. Uh, for example, soy milk has been called tonyu in Japan for centuries. Tonyu means soy milk. It's the same character new as it is for mother's milk or the milk of another animal. I would argue that things like milk and meat uh, represent things that are either white and creamy or that are meaty in substance. Coconut meat, peanut butter. Right. It's the meat of a mushroom. Um, the, and so there is no industry that owns these words. Mm -hmm. People have tried to tell me that uh, milk belongs to the dairy industry. And, you know, I often point out that in Asia, for example, as I mentioned before, tonyu means soy milk. And to outlaw the use of milk and say it only belongs to the dairy industry, and it could, you could even say it's sort of racist because it's, it's denying the legitimacy of terminology in other cultures. So, you know, it right. is, the pushback is driven more from fear than anything else. And, and that's exactly, that was kind of my next question because I have encountered farmers in California over the years who really do view the plant-based food industry as a mortal threat. It kind of blows my mind because they're so well established, right? And they talk about, and I don't think it's just producers. I think it's also consumers of meat and dairy, you know, um, who will talk about complicated or what they describe as complicated or synthetic ingredients in plant-based meat and dairy versus like one pure ingredient in a burger, right? Or in a gallon of milk. How do you respond to that criticism? Well... It's true and it's not true. It, it is true that there are a lot of plant-based products that are, you know, highly processed in some ways. And I think the, the plant-based industry has to work harder to try to uh, 
reduce the number of ingredients. I think there's also consumer confusion about what some of those ingredients are that are actually very natural, right? Uh, but they just sound like they're not. Um, and so, you know, uh, for example, um, I don't know, locust bean gum is just a derivative of a plant and it's, there's nothing really, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it just sounds like it's yeah not good. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's not true that there's only one ingredient in milk or meat um, because uh, 90% of the antibiotics produced in the country are actually given to animals, um, not to that, that we're eating. Uh, uh, and if you actually look at all of the chemicals that are that are in the meat itself and you, uh, you know, there's dioxins and all kinds of stuff that is actually in meat from the feed that they're consuming, which gets trapped, you know, which gets absorbed by the fatty, the adipose tissues of the animal, et cetera. Um, they're really, it's, yeah, I mean, it's meat, but it's meat with a bunch of different chemicals that you may or may not want. They actually dump things like formaldehyde into fish farms. If you take, you know, salmon that's been farmed and you analyze all the chemicals in it, it's full of mercury and dioxins and formaldehyde and just like all kinds of things that you probably don't want to put into your body. So it, it's actually kind of not true. Mm-hmm. Also, let's remember in milk, you're consuming pus, you're consuming blood. Um, in, in fact, you're allowed to have so many parts of pus per liter of milk. Um, it's kind of kind of gross when you think about that. I know, man. I, <laughs> nothing really satisfies <laughs> me like a big, tall, cold glass of bloody pus milk <laughs> come on uh, what are we talking about here all right well this gets us to your dairy farm transition yes. program what is the dairy farm transition and how does it work okay it's a program that we have at miyoko's and there are a few other nonprofits in the country uh, that also are trying to do similar programs so we thought it'd be really really cool to take some corporate responsibility Um, As we are deemed a threat to the industry, we thought instead of being a threat, let's be the solution. The idea is to work with a farmer, one dairy farmer, and help them transition away from dairy to crops that could become part of our supply chain and paying them for this transition. So dairy and meat, as you know, are largely subsidized. Uh, California dairy farmers are doing better than farmers in other parts of the country. And we actually wanted to find a farmer here in California, but we got so much pushback here that wow. right now we're negotiating a contract with a New York, upstate New York dairy farmer who has a negative net income. So a lot of dairy farmers have negative net incomes or they make maybe $10,000 a year. Uh, if you're a small farmer, it's very hard to compete with consolidation and these large dairy farms that have gone in. California dairy farms by far typically tend to be much larger than in other parts of the country, which is why throughout the Midwest, like Wisconsin or the Northeast, dairy farms are collapsing, smaller family farms are collapsing at an incredible rate um, because uh, they can't compete with consolidation. Um, And so we thought, let's provide an alternative where we actually provide the farmer with an income to sustain them through the transition and provide them with the resources Uh, and the economic um, education to help them make that transition. So we've partnered with Rodale Institute and Kitchen kitchen Table Consultants to help them learn about regenerative agriculture, to help them plant the crops, to help them with crop rotation and all of that to rebuild the soil, as well as um, 
enter this new economic world that is going to become more and more uh, plant-based. But just to go back a second, it, you said that you've gotten pushback in California. You have no farms or partners on this transition in California itself? We have no farms or partners here. We have a dairy farm transition manager who has gone up and down California, visited farmers, have gotten kicked out of far, kicked off of farms. The, um, the California Milk Advisory Board, I believe, sent an email to every dairy farmer in California saying, uh, stay away from this woman who might come and visit you. She wow. is an activist, represents Miyoko Shinner. They're against the dairy industry, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's not true. I mean, there are dairies that are collapsing in California, too, and people, like, uncertain what to do with their lives, and we can help. Mm-hmm. And there are there's other monies out there. There are people that are willing to help farmers transition to become part of the new economy. Well, so is the economic sustainability piece of this the primary argument? And to what extent is like the humane treatment of farm animals? It's both, actually. Yeah. So so if you're going to be part of this program, you can't continue uh, animal agriculture. Oh, OK. So, you know, there's there's not a lot of cows left at this dairy farm um, because they have been not doing well and trying to find other um, I guess they were growing hay for to sell to other dairy ranches that was becoming more uh, viable for them. And, th- and so they only have a few dozen cows left, but we're trying to rehome them um, to sanctuaries and or to help them establish their own sanctuary at their farm. Talk to our listeners directly right now for folks who are maybe curious about going partially or fully plant based or vegan, but maybe think it's too expensive or too much work or they're self-conscious or they can't live without cheese mm-hmm. or ice cream or whatever. Those are all totally reasonable concerns. Uh, how would you reassure those folks that plant-based foods like yours are accessible and maybe even something they'll really like? Oh, my gosh. I mean, all I can tell you is that veganism is the most phenomenal lifestyle out there. And I've never met a vegan that goes, I wish I'd never gone vegan. I want to go back. Most vegans are like, oh, my God, I wish I'd done this sooner. I feel so good. And I've made a connection with nature and animals that I never knew I could have before. And the food, oh, my God, let me tell you about the food. Because what happens is that, you know, most people eat the same foods day in and day out. They never really question it. And they think that if they go vegan, they're going to limit themselves. And what they find when they go vegan is all of a sudden, this you become a massive explorer of food. And, and all of a sudden, you start tasting and exploring things that you've never had before. Um, and you just realize there's this huge amount. Of, I mean, like there's a whole world of flavors out there that you didn't even know existed. And so it's there, like whatever an omnivore eats, I can eat if I want to eat fried chicken. There's a vegan version of that. Um, on the other hand, you know, you'll start, your taste buds change in about 21 days. Mm. It doesn't take very long. Interesting. And so you will start, exp- you, they'll become more subtle. You'll be able to pick up nuances and flavor that you couldn't before when you're eating really just sort of heavy foods. And you'll find yourself enjoying life more. I personally feel compassion is the root of happiness. And, and when you start realizing that we're just one little species in this world of other beings that also are entitled to life on this planet, you feel this unification. I know now I'm beginning to sound like a typical well, Californian. No, but the who, thing is, no, it's, the we, feel, uh, groovy, it's, it's feel, just yeah, Americans, yeah. Americans are so 
uncompassionate and starting with themselves. It's yes. like we are so hard on ourselves, yes. you know, and yes. we take that out on animals. We take that out on the environment. And I yes. think that that is actually a key to happiness. If we could just kind of like turn that inward. Yes. And I think that would kind of uh, start to develop and manifest outwardly. And, you know, and this message hasn't ta- changed since, you know, the days of Christ. Everything starts with love. Everything starts from a place of giving and love. And when we can manifest that in our lives and embrace veganism from that viewpoint, that we're doing it for the animals, for the planet, for other people, we become happier because every single day you wake up with a sense of purpose. You, have, you wake up with a sense of, I have more to do to help the world. Uh, what is the biggest challenge that you think California faces and how can it be surmounted? Well, I think the biggest challenge is really our natural resources. Water is huge. And it's going to get even worse. Climate change is huge. And one of the biggest contributors to that is animal agriculture. We have to start thinking about ecosystems and species extinction. We used to have 500,000 tule elk in California. We're down to less than 5,000 now. Mm. And most of them are out in Point Reyes. And there is a, a national seashore. So it's a national park where we have all these cattle. We have all these ranches that are leasing land from the park services And these elk are behind fences. And during last year, we lost um, half a herd. There were about about 500, and we lost close to 300, I believe, because they couldn't access water because of the ranch fences. And so we have to think, and and the ranches were all trucking water in because they were running out of water. And then there's the runoff from the ranches going into the, uh, the oceans there. Point Reyes National Seashore. Fecal contamination there, it's among the top 10 dirtiest waters off the coast of California. Yes. Wow. And these are things the public uh, doesn't know. I wouldn't have guessed that. And and so we're going to be fighting for our rights to water. And, you know, what's happening in the Central Valley because of agriculture, they're digging further and further to reach deeper wells and the grounds are collapsing in some cities, as you probably know. Subsidence. Yes. Um, And we can reduce the amount of land that's needed for animal agriculture by 80 percent, according to a University of Oxford study, if we eliminated animal agriculture. Now, I know that's not going to happen overnight, but if every Californian just decided I'm not going to eat meat one day a week or two days a week, that would impact the amount of land and water and resources needed for animal agriculture. And we also need our government to support these programs because most of the the money is going to animal ag. California has allocated several million dollars to give to ranchers for methane digesters to clean up a problem that they're creating. Why don't we just eliminate it? Why don't we encourage, take that money, encourage ranchers to switch to growing crops mm-hmm. or doing something else with their land or, or maybe sell their land. They can, it's probably worth millions now. Mm-hmm. That might be more than what they're earning from ranching activities. Um, I mean, there's so much more we could do with, with uh, public funds to help um, uh, transition to more sustainable forms of agriculture. We need to build so much more infrastructure. Maybe renewable energy is another area that a lot of these ranches could get into. Right. Um, you know, leasing land to energy companies or getting into that themselves. I mean, there's so many opportunities, and I think we need to be subsidizing transitions to more sustainable energy and agriculture rather than trying to solve the pro- a problem that is being created by this industry. So in your experience discussing California with people outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about California? Um, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm visiting L.A. next week. Uh, can I come and visit you? 
uh, they don't realize how big California is. So I guess I get this a lot from people outside of California. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Okay, well, I'm going to bring it into family, I hope. So my favorite Californian um, is my brother, uh, who lives in SoCal, was raised in Mill Valley, went to UCLA, studied anthropology, and then he saw an ad on a telephone pole. Uh, this is back in the 70s, 80s, I think, for um, someone to draw cartoons for a restaurant company. So he answered that ad, started drawing these goofy ads because he just drew, you know, just for fun. And now he's been in the, the industry for the last 30 years. He, um, he works at Paramount Pictures now as head of story on movies. Um, wow. He worked at Nickelodeon for, and then uh, DreamWorks for 17 years. Um, and, he's, and he's a vegan. Hey. And he was someone that I harassed about veganism for years. And he was like, you could just get off your soapbox. I'm so sick and tired of your preaching. And then he finally went vegan. And then people at DreamWorks started avoiding him when he, they saw him in the hallway because all he'd ever do is like, hey, have you tried the vegan burger today? <laughs> He's just someone I love. We're Steven so close. Steven Spielberg's like, oh, here yeah. comes, here he comes here again. Here comes Rob Porter. Just avoid him. Here he comes again. <laughs> Oh, man. Miyoko, this has been a blast. Thank you again so much for welcoming us to your ranch. It's been great meeting you and talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stu. It was fun. All right. There you have it. How about that? Miyoko Shinner, folks. Thank you to Miyoko for inviting me to Rancho Campasión. It was great to visit, great to meet her in person, and great to talk to her about everything she's working on and yeah, get a little bit closer to answering our prevailing perennial question. What is California? That was a lot of fun and uh, I hope you enjoyed it too. What is California is produced, hosted and edited by me, Stu Van Airsdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to our What is California newsletter on Substack whatiscalifornia.substack.com that will get you a free episode every Tuesday right there in your email inbox as well as a great roundup of cool California stories every Friday with our weekend links that's again whatiscalifornia.substack.com doesn't cost you a dime hope to see you there feel free to email me anytime Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. It's always great to hear from you with any questions, suggestions, comments, love notes, hate mail, marriage proposals, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. And of course, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you like What is California, I'd love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts in particular. It does help new listeners find us. That is it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Can't wait to see you again next week. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.